the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin, the gentleman, is engineering. You know, yesterday I mentioned how freezing it is in here. I made a little joke. I said, Sam, could you get a blanket? I come into the studio and there he has his khaki jacket that is heavy, substantial, and would provide warmth in the event that I pass out from hypothermia. Thank you, Sam. That was very thoughtful. You're welcome. Please don't do that. <laughs> pass out or put the jacket on? Pass out. Yeah, show's I, no good without a host. So I just think I have stay. a light dose of hypothermia, but I'll keep you posted. I'll let you know before I fall off my chair. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us today. We're going to be uh, hearing from Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. That's coming up in the second hour of the program. And as if you didn't have you know enough to think about, China apparently is infiltrating kids' video games with propaganda and spyware. It goes beyond what they're uh, doing on the screen when they're playing said video games, but they're collecting information and planting stuff. Uh, when the kids are done. So we'll tell you more about that later in the program as well. Well, the Oregon Department of Education and Oregon Health Authority officials discussed COVID management plans at a news conference uh, yesterday. The start of the new school year is just around the corner, and Oregon health and education officials are working to prepare parents and students to navigate the dual challenges of the COVID pandemic and the monkeypox outbreak. Now, one would, might have assumed that COVID is pretty much under control, and monkeypox really focuses on a particular group, but nonetheless, they're on it. State health officers and the epidemiologist, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, and Oregon Department of Education Director Colt Gill held a press conference uh, yesterday afternoon to discuss the status of both health threats. Oregon made it through the previous school year with only a few interruptions of in-person learning at a handful of schools. Um, the uh, director of um, Department of Education pointed out, and the priority in the coming year will be to continue to make uh, make sure all students have consistent access to in-person instruction, which is, of course, what everyone expects. Oregon officials have pulled back on some safety measures, such as contact tracing and quarantining students and staff in schools, Seidlinger said, and the latest guidance from the Centers for Disease Control that is making its own mea culpa um, has taken a similar approach. Most health and safety decisions will continue to be made by individual school districts and local health authorities, Gill said. State-level interventions like mask mandates are unlikely, although he did stress that individuals should still consider wearing masks indoors if they live with someone who is at risk. I was very excited at what the CDC is encouraging all of us to do, he said, and that's um, uh, taking personal responsibility. Ann Loeffler, Deputy Health Officer for Multnomah County, says she hopes the changes will benefit kids socially, emotionally, and practically because, well, there was a lot of damage done with the quarantining 
they lived through for the last two years. The schools will not have the capacity to identify or track anybody who exposes is exposed either in school or in the social setting outside of school or ask anyone or insist that anyone wear masks. Loeffler continued, but I'm hoping this is just the way our society will evolve. This will be a good common sense approach. And that's what we do as part of a community, which I think people would have been happy to have done earlier. Anyway, the Department of Education has school planning documents available online, plus a new resource called Oregon Classroom Wise and Wise is in caps. It's a suite of free print and video resources for adults and students to help cope with the mental health challenges brought on by the pandemic. Many school districts are excited for the new school year and hope it's going to bring them closer to normalcy. The difference this school year is uh, we're actually opening in person at the beginning of the school year. Steve Padilla, assistant director of the public relations and partnerships of the Reynolds district, pointed out, we still want parents to check their children before taking them to school and make sure that they're not showing any signs or symptoms. And if they are, keep them home. Well, COVID infection rates remain elevated in Oregon, primarily due to the Omicron BA5 variant. But new cases and hospitalizations have been both trending downward for several years, uh, several, I wish it was years, weeks. Although Seidlinger added the daily tally of new cases is likely to uh, to be undercounted. So as the school year begins, they've got some things in mind. By the way, monkeypox cases are still rising in Oregon, Seidlinger said. But the virus is much harder to transmit than COVID and is unlikely to spread quickly in schools. Districts likely won't need to implement measures to slow the spread, he said, but they should have protocols in place to deal with cases that do show up. So welcome back to school. Well, as we mentioned yesterday, a judge decided to hear arguments today on whether or not to make the um, affidavit open on the Trump FBI raid and uh, whether or not it should remain sealed. Well, the judge says the government has not met the burden showing why the entire Trump FBI raid affidavit should remain sealed. So he's going to make it possible for elements of it to be made open perhaps redacted. Well, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who ordered other documents related to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, says the Department of Justice has not met its burden of showing that the entire affidavit should remain sealed. I find that on the uh, present record, the government has has not met its burden of showing that the entire affidavit should remain sealed. It is ordered that by noon Eastern Standard Time on Thursday... The 25th of August, the government shall file under seal its proposed redactions along with a legal memorandum setting forth the justification for the proposed redactions. Again, that was a quote from the judge. It is further ordered that the ECF number 57 shall be unsealed by the clerk of court done and ordered in chambers at West Palm Beach, Florida, this 18th day of August, 2022. So on the 25th, the FBI or the Department of Justice, whichever, will present to the judge a redacted version of the affidavit, and they will decide what they think should be left out. Of course, they thought the whole thing should be, but uh, the judge said that he would retain the right to scrap what they present and come up with his own version. But that will all begin on Thursday, August the 25th. As for me and my house, we just wish the drama would end, that it would be over, that this conversation would Well, would have a happy ending, but that's not likely to happen in the short term. After all, there's a midterm election coming up and there are those who invested a great deal in preventing at least one potential candidate from throwing his hat in the ring. And of course, there's a presidential election coming up in a couple of years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour, Erwin Lutzer. We will not be silenced. Well, Alan Weiselberg, the former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, pled guilty to tax fraud charges today as part of a deal that will require him to testify about the financial practices of the Trump real estate empire that he helped run. The executive and the company of former President Donald Trump were charged in July of last year with a 15-year tax fraud scheme and were accused of collecting more than $1.7 million in off-the-books compensation. Weiselberg is uh, being used by the Manhattan District Attorney as a pawn and a scorched earth attempt to harm the former president. The Trump Organization said in a statement in 2021, well, the district attorney is bringing a criminal prosecution involving employee benefits that neither the IRS nor any other district attorney would ever think of bringing. This is not justice. This is politics. Well, that's what the uh, organization is saying in response. Well, the most serious charge filed against Weiselberg's grand larceny carried a sentence of five to 15 years in prison, according to the outlet. He pled guilty to 15 counts felonies on Thursday, admitting that he conspired with the company in the tax scheme, but did not implicate the former president. By pleading guilty, Weiselberg is expected to serve five months in jail and with good behavior is expected to serve about 100 days, according to the New York Times, which cited anonymous sources. He's not expected to implicate the uh, Trump family, but by pleading guilty, maybe leaving the company to face trial alone in October. The outlet reported in one of the most um, difficult decisions of his life, Mr. Weiselberg decided to enter a plea of guilty today to put an end to this case and the years long legal and personal nightmares it has caused him for his family and his family. His lawyer, Nicholas Gravant Jr., said after the trial, according to The New York Times, rather than risk the possibility of 15 years in prison, he has agreed to serve 100 days. We are glad to have this behind him. The question is, is it really behind him? In any event, the implications um, are not entirely understood at this point. Well, on this day in history, August the 18th, 1920, the 19th Amendment is ratified and it granted women the right to vote. A young Tennessee legislator, urged by his mother, gave the amendment the final vote needed for ratification. Well, let me go back a little bit. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution that secured for women the right to vote was ratified on this day in history. It's considered one of the great landmarks in the fight for gender equality. It was just sex back then, but now it's gender. The amendment was often called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment in reference to the renowned suffragist whose extraordinary efforts championed the right to women, right of women rather, to be heard at the ballot box. From the earliest history of our country, women have Uh, shown equal devotion with men to the cause of freedom and have stood firmly by his side in its defense, Anthony wrote in her Declaration of Rights of Women and of the United States, the 4th of July, 1876. Women's wealth, thought and labor have cemented the stones of every monument man has raised to liberty, end quote. Women in the U.S. first uh, gained the right to vote in the Wyoming Territory in 1869, After another half century of struggle, the nationwide effort to grant the right to all American women gained momentum with the midterm election of November of 1918. Republicans swept to victory to capture both houses of Congress that November. The new Senate in June of 1919 approved the amendment and sent it on to the states. After 41 years of debate, 41 years of debate, uh, notes the chamber, uh, their official history. 
Women have shown equal devotion. That was the argument. Well, the Senate had defeated the amendment numerous times over the previous four decades, most recently in October of 1918. It then required approval by three quarters of the 48 states. And in the summer of 1920, the chance to become the all-important 36th state fell upon the Tennessee Assembly. A young Tennessee legislator, a suffrage opponent, Harry T. Byrne, he was 24 at the time, reconsidered his position on the issue after receiving a warning from his determined mother. Well, the state Senate voted convincingly to ratify, but the House failed to do so twice by two votes of 48 to 48. Well, just as a third vote was set to begin, Byrne received a letter from his mother, Feb Insminger Byrne, that read in part, Hurrah and vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. I've been watching to see how you stood, but have not seen anything yet. Don't forget to be a good boy, end quote. Well, Byrne listened to his mother on the third vote. He's uh, yay, broke the deadlock and determined ratification. The passage of the 19th Amendment came just in time to grant millions of women the right to vote in the presidential election two months later. Warren G. Harding, an Ohio Republican, easily defeated Democrat and fellow Buckeye James Cox and his running mate Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1920 election, winning 37 of 48 states and more than 60 percent of the popular vote. The 19th Amendment was passed in a flurry of constitutional activity in the wake of World War One, much like um, uh, that after the Civil War, when the Reconstruction Amendment 13th, 14th, 15th were passed in the immediate aftermath of the conflict. But not all were satisfied. The 18th Amendment ratified just a year earlier than the 19th prohibited the sale of alcohol in the United States. The 20th Amendment in 1933 repealed it. The 19th Amendment was also a part of a global effort among Western nations to grant women's suffrage amid the turmoil of World War I. Norway became the first nation to allow women to vote in 1913. Doors began to open at the end of World War I as Great Britain in 1918, Germany also in 1918, and the Netherlands in 1919 all granted universal rights for women to vote. France didn't allow women to vote until 1944. The 19th is among the shortest amendments. Its brevity merely reinforces its necessity. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. It states Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And women were allowed to vote. Well, in other uh, news, let America see. The judge has ordered the partial unsealing of documents related to the Trump FBI raid. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt today ordered some of the documents connected to the FBI raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate to be unsealed today. Well, on the affidavit, the judge found that the entire affidavit should not be sealed or revealed for that matter. He had sort of a um, solemn, a Solomon approach. Reinhardt has reportedly given the government one week to submit proposed redactions under the seal by noon on the 15th or excuse me, the 25th of August. Judge Reinhardt will review those redactions and then decide how he wants to proceed and if he wants to make his own redactions instead. He remained uh, reminded all rather that if the government or media object to his redactions, which will also be under seal, they can appeal his ruling. Well, giving her a failing grade, AOC's defund the police report card flunks the statistics test as the New York City crime spike rattles communities. 
In an inflation realization, the media finally admits President Biden's bill name was, well, a marketing ploy, but only after it was signed into law. The media is right on it. Describing the country of as uh, off the rails, Ben Carson argues that America was built on the rule of law, but Joe Biden and his team are tearing it apart at the seams. Imagining a wonderful future, Trump trolls Democrats with surprising endorsements, including one for his harshest critic. The former president made two surprising endorsements Wednesday, stating that he strongly endorsed impeachment manager Dan Goldman and Representative Carolyn Maloney, both Democrats from New York. Lawyer Dan Goldman is running for Congress, uh, District 10, and it is my great honor to strongly endorse him. Trump stated in his Truth Social post on Wednesday evening, Goldman, who's running to represent a district that includes part of Manhattan and Brooklyn, represented Democrats in the first impeachment trial of Trump, speaking in the third person. I do this not because of the fact that he uh, headed up the impeachment committee and lost, but because he was honorable, fair and highly intelligent. While it was my honor to beat him and beat him badly, Dan Goldman has a wonderful future ahead, he stated. Trump's apparent sarcasm continued, stating that Goldman will be very compassionate and compromising to those within the Republican Party and will do everything possible to make sure they have a fair chance at winning against the radical left Democrats who he knows are destroying our country. Again, I'm still quoting the former president. I would like to thank Dan for fighting so hard for America and for working so tirelessly to stop Trump, referring, of course, to himself. He was not easy to beat, but winning against him made me realize just how very talented I am, end quote. Oh, how one looks forward to the end of the drama, but I fear it is not forthcoming. Nothing good. Senator Johnson labeled the Democrats Inflation Reduction Act Orwellian, saying it will not reduce inflation, which now the mainstream media is willing to admit saying we're fed up Harriet Hegman. She sees her landslide victory over Liz Cheney in Wyoming as a beacon for the nation. Now Cheney overstepped the bounds by comparing herself to Lincoln and maybe uh, uh, this person should step back just a bit as well. Harriet Hagman. Well, saying it's actually a human life, Joe Rogan and the Babylon Bee CEO, Seth Dillon sparred on abortion. He said, I don't think murder fixes a rape. It's a rather interesting exchange if you have an opportunity to look it up. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our wind through the news and a conversation with Erwin Lutzer in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in today's program, a conversation with Erwin Lutzer. We will not be silenced. And we'll also talk about uh, China infiltrating kids' video games with propaganda and spyware that parents should be aware of and looking out for. Well, returning to the news, James Carville says Democrats are silly, but the GOP is evil. Why can't we just get along? A New York Times writer, Frank Bruni, he's arguing that Liz Cheney, would, uh, who lost her primary by 37 points, won in all the ways that count. So you lose this is kind of that you get a participation trophy. It doesn't matter that you actually lost. You participated. So apparently she won in all the ways that counts and should get a trophy. Well, the Big Apple's little victims. New York City is seeing a spate of attacks on kids in affluent neighborhoods. And losing steam, the housing market has become a major headwind for the U.S. economy. Media outlets are rushing to um, rename the Inflation Reduction Act after failing to accurately report it, uh, report 
on it before its passage. They're on it. Well, Twitter users took several media outlets and reporters to task for no longer using the term Inflation Reduction Act to describe the massive spending bill the president signed into law on Tuesday. As the bill came closer to being signed into law, more media outlets began referring to it as a climate and health bill instead, citing nearly $369 billion going toward investments in energy security and climate change. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins said Senator Manchin is here at the White House for President Biden signing for the climate, tax and health care bill. It apparently has no name. More examples of relabeling the bill. The Associated Press uh, reports that Biden signs massive climate and health care legislation with no name. The New York Times, Biden signs climate health bill into law as other economic goals remain like inflation. NBC, Biden signs major climate, health care and tax bill into law. Well, Liz Cheney is pondering a 2024 presidential run. Being rejected by her state is not enough. She's thinking about being rejected by the entire GOP. Well, National Review reports that the representative admitted Wednesday that she's thinking about running for president in 2024, hours after losing the Republican primary for Wyoming's only House seat to Trump-backed Harriet Hagman in a landslide. Asked about her career plans by the uh, Today shows Savannah Guthrie. Cheney was uh, initially coy, but when pressed again, Cheney admitted a presidential run was on her mind. Today show, I'll make a decision in the coming months, Representative Liz Cheney said about possibly running for president. Katie Pavlich says Cheney will be out of her uh, current job soon, but has already launched a new organization to oppose President Donald Trump and hinted during her concession speech that she plans to run for the White House. Dinesh D'Souza says any incumbent member of Congress who loses by 40 points in a primary isn't ready to win the presidency any more than a tennis player who loses 6-0-6-0-6-0 is the first ra- in the first round is ready to win Wimbledon. But of course, she's mentioned that her stated goal isn't necessarily becoming the next president, but depriving the former president, Donald Trump, of that opportunity. Planned Parenthood has thrown a record $50 million into midterm elections. The pro-abortion organization is uh, pouring the record millions into the 2022 midterm elections in an attempt to elect pro-abortion candidates up and down the ballot this November. In a press release Wednesday, Planned Parenthood announced its massive midterm spending plan and the launch of its new electoral spending program, Take Control, following the Supreme Court's June decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, one of the reasons they can afford that is because they receive taxpayer money. The women they serve, they are paired, uh, paid well to serve and and they charge the women for the service, well, service they provide. Pregnancy Resource Centers, well, that comes out of your pocket and mine and thousands, millions perhaps of others who care about these women and benefit no way financially. Anyway, making way for the states to place stricter restrictions and bans on abortion is what they are attempting to prevent. Planned Parenthood. The organization announced its funds will be strategically used to elect abortion rights champions, they call them, across the country, who are critical to protecting abortion access to a post-Roe world. Uh, Daily Wire says, indeed, midterm election outcomes in many state legislature and gubernatorial races could allow Republican lawmakers to pass more abortion regulations. We'll see how it all uh, plays out. Smith and Weapon, uh, Wesson, rather, 
They're talking about weapons, but they're defending the Second Amendment amid the unjustified attack on the firearm industry, as they put it. Smith and Wesson took to Twitter to hit back at politicians and the media for suggesting that the gun manufacturer and not the policies they support were responsible for rising crime rates. Smith and Wesson said amid an unprecedented and unjustified attack on the firearm industry, Smith and Wesson president and CEO issued issued rather a strong statement. Daily Wire points out that the president has made gun control one of his main priorities. He has repeated his calls to ban certain semi-automatic rifles and high-capacity magazines after mass shooting events. Making a midterm adjustment, TikTok plans to restrict and label political ads. Hmm, I wonder which ones. TikTok will label all content related to the midterms and crack down on paid influencer political ads as part of its plan to prepare for the upcoming elections. And the company announced on Wednesday, the popular video sharing app owned by the People's Republic of China, essentially, will label content identified as being related to the elections and all content with accounts that belong to governments, politicians and political parties in the U.S. The New York Post points out that while TikTok has banned paid political ads since 2019, campaign strategists have skirted the ban by paying influencers to promote political issues. The company seeks to close the loophole by hosting briefings with creators and talent agencies to remind them that posting paid political content is about is against TikTok's policies. Eric Hahn, TikTok's head of U.S. safety, during a briefing said to reporters. And the Southern District Court of Florida has now issued the preliminary injunction at the order of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Did you follow that? The ordinances enacted by the city of Boca Raton and Palm Beach County, which prohibited the viewpoints of licensed counselors from providing counsel to minors, are now officially blocked. These licensed therapists can now provide life-saving counseling to minors who desperately desire to conform their attraction Uh, their behaviors and their gender identities to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, it was in Otto et al. City of Boca Raton, Florida, at all the 11th Circuit, had previously ordered the lower court in uh, late July uh, to issue an injunction against the unconstitutional bans. However, Federal District Judge Robin Rosenberg did not promptly comply with the order and allowed it to sit on the uh, district court's docket for more than two weeks. Well, yesterday, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ordered federal district judge Robin Rosenberg to comply with the order from the appeals court and enter the preliminary injunction by five o'clock tomorrow. The district court finally entered that preliminary conjunction or injunction today. And again, the licensed therapists in that area can now provide Counseling to minors who desperately desire to conform their attractions, their behaviors and gender identities to their sincerely held religious beliefs. It is a major victory, particularly at this point in our nation's history. Well, on their fire, uh, whites only policy, Minneapolis public schools are refusing to back down despite criticism. Forty four percent of pregnant women miscarried after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. But it wasn't important enough to actually report 44 percent American greatness did report more than 40 percent of pregnant women who participated in Pfizer mRNA covid vaccine trials suffered miscarriages, according to internal Pfizer documents recently released under court order. Despite this, Pfizer and the administration, the Biden administration, insisted that the vaccines were safe for pregnant women. Out of 50 pregnant women, 22 of them lost their babies, according to an analysis of the documents. 
The FDA and CDC could conceivably claim they were unaware of high rates of miscarriages in the trial because Pfizer attempted to obscure the data. Will Witt points out that according to Dr. Naomi Wolf, who runs the crowdsourced project that analyzed 300,000 Pfizer documents released via a Freedom of Information Act request, 44 percent of pregnant women who participated in the drug makers COVID-19 vaccine trial lost their babies. The Florida Standard report that on its website, the CDC still recommends that pregnant women get vaccinated. COVID-19 vaccination is recommended for all people six months and older. This includes people who are pregnant, breastfeeding, trying to get pregnant now or might become pregnant in the future. Forty four percent. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the CDC is vowing an internal overhaul to repair its reputation. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Director Rochelle Walensky, said Wednesday that the agency did not reliably meet expectations, end quote, and would overhaul its operations after an external review found shortcomings in the COVID-19 response. Well, that's a polite way of putting it. Political says the CDC's restructuring follows two reviews conducted in recent months, one by Health Resources and Services Administration official Jim McRae and the CDC's pandemic response, and another by CDC Chief of Staff Sherry Berger into agency operations. Specifically, McRae's review, which included 120 interviews with CDC staffers and people outside the agency, recommended a series of improvements, including releasing scientific findings and data more quickly to improve transparency, translating science into practical and easy-to-understand policy, improving communication with the public, working better with other agencies and public health partners, and training and incentivizing the agency's workforce to respond better to public health emergencies. And I would add, not denigrating those that present uh, reliable people who present information that they now have embraced but rejected at the time and censored. China is sending troops to Russia to join in their training. America's enemies are on the move and growing in strength. Reuters reports that China's troops will travel to Russia to take part in joint military exercises led by the host and including India, Belarus, Mongolia, Tajikistan and other countries. China's defense ministry said on Wednesday, China's participation in the joint exercises was unrelated to the current international and regional situation, end quote. The ministry said in a statement. National Review points out the military drills come as tensions continue to flare between the U.S. and China over Taiwan after the U.S. sent two congressional delegations, uh, delegations rather, to the island. Russia and China announced a no-limits partnership on February 4th. The two countries have deepened their bilateral relations since Russia's invasion of Ukraine with China, refusing to sanction Russia and condemn the war. The battle lines are being drawn with implications far into the future. In a sad goodbye, the New York Times 9-11 Tribute Museum is closing permanently. Debt burden and reduced visitorship due to COVID-19 proved insurmountable. I always wanted to visit that location, but it will not be there. The New York Post reports that Lower Manhattan's 9-11 Tribute Museum, a nearly 30,000 square foot space located three blocks from the World Trade Center uh, site, will shut its doors Wednesday afternoon, just weeks shy of the 21st anniversary of the terror attacks. The Greenwich Street Museum, which opened in 2006 nearly nearby the uh, Liberty Street, has struggled to stay afloat since the 2020 onset of COVID-19. 
Melissa DeRosa says this cannot stand. The state handed a $1 billion plus over to the billionaire owners of the Buffalo Bills. They have to stop this. Hashtag priorities. Well, New York Governor Hochul is targeting toy guns. Evidently, perception is reality and feelings are facts. At least that's what appears to be the rationale behind the New York governor's um, recent signing of a bill targeting toy guns. In signing the new legislation, she touted it as a crime-fighting measure because restricting these realistic-looking devices will ensure misleading and potentially dangerous devices are off our streets, keeping kids, law enforcement, and all New Yorkers safe. Former New York Governor Cuomo has uh, won the $5.1 million lawsuit. Speaking of bad governors of New York, ousted uh, ex-Governor Andrew Cuomo won a lawsuit on Tuesday when the state Supreme Court ruled against an effort to force him to repay $5.1 million he made in profits from his book, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, which falsely touted his pandemic response. The Joint Commission on Public Ethics raised the lawsuit against Cuomo, accusing the ex-governor of misusing staff and state resources to write the book. While Cuomo never denied that he used his staff to help with the book, he insisted their help was completely on a voluntary basis. The court found that uh, Jay Cope, as it's known, was seeking to impose sanctions for Cuomo's alleged noncompliance with their uh, outside activities rule. However, they issued the approval of the uh, for the outside activity, then ultimately determined wrongdoing, then withdrew the approval and finally imposed the uh, uh, disorgement um, penalty. Uh, While this ruling is a win for Cuomo, he's not out of the woods just yet, as the state attorney general, Letitia James, is also investigating those allegations in between the cases involving the former President Trump and New York resident, by the way. A White House climate aide has been sanctioned by the National Academy of Sciences. A senior White House climate aide just reviewed a, a received rather a five year ban from the prestigious National Academy of Sciences. Uh, Jane Lubachno uh, received a significant rebuke from the NAS for having violated the science body's code of conduct policy, which requires members to avoid those detrimental research practices that are clear violations of the fundamental tenets of research. The NAS's decision stems from two discoveries. Lubachno had uh, edited a now retracted uh, paper in which the underlying data was not the latest available, and she had a familial relationship with one of the authors of the study. The irony here is here that the White House has tapped her to lead its development of scientific integrity policies for the federal government. American Accountability Foundation founder Tom Jones responded to the news by stating the American people deserve leadership in the White House who don't use their positions to influence uh, positions of influence to put their thumb on the scales for friends and family. Well, on this date last year, President Biden's surrender and retreat from Afghanistan was made complete on the eve of the 20th observance of the 9-11 Islamic attack on our nation, which is coming up. The president receded Al Qaeda's terrorist turf and let the world's tyrant know they have nothing to fear from him. Not getting the message, Liz Cheney is thinking about a White House run after uh, her primary loss. MSNBC, ABC, CNN suddenly realized the Inflation Reduction Act doesn't reduce inflation after the bill is passed. Timing is everything. Even 52 percent of Democrats didn't believe the IRA was, in fact, uh, going to actually reduce inflation. In a short term win, President Biden has reinstated the largest oil and gas lease sale in American history, extending federal sanctuary. The Marshals Service plans to stop holding illegal immigrants for ICE. And former Trump advisor John Bolton says Biden's concessions to Iran would border on treason. China plans to send troops to Russia 
to joint uh, for joint military exercises. And Stacey Abrams says she opposes defunding police, but she led an organization that wants to defund the police and the Inflation Reduction Act won't reduce inflation. The government is struggling to prosecute billions of dollars from covid fraud. And today, CNN announced that Brian Stetler, its chief media correspondents, would be departing the network. His show, Reliable Sources, is being canceled following a final episode this coming Sunday. Well, on this day in history, 1587, Virginia Dare becomes the first child of English parents to be born in present-day America on what is now Roanoke Island in North Carolina. Of course, she was the first um, English uh, child, not a child per se. Also on this day in history, um, fifth, let's see, 1862, Dakota Indians began an uprising in Minnesota. The revolt would be crushed by U.S. forces some six weeks later. 1894, Congress establishes the Bureau of Immigration. 1914, President Woodrow Wilson issues his proclamation of neutrality aimed at keeping the United States out of World War One. 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing all American women the right to vote. 1963, James Meredith becomes the first black student to graduate from the University of Mississippi. 1969, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in Bethel, New York, comes to a close after three nights with a mid-morning set by Jimi Hendrix. 1976, two U.S. Army officers are killed in Korea's demilitarized zone as a group of North Korean soldiers wielding axes and metal pikes attack U.S. and Southern uh, Korean soldiers. 1993, a judge in Sarasota, Florida, rules that Kimberly Mays, the 14-year-old girl who had been switched at birth with another baby, need never again see her biological parents, Ernst and Regina Twig, in accordance with her wishes. However, Kimberly would later move in with the Twigs, her biological family. 1995, Shannon Faulkner, uh, who won the two-and-a-half-year legal battle to become the first female cadet at the Citadel, quits the South Carolina Military College after less than a week. Most of it spent in the infirmary. And finally, on this day in history, 2004, in Athens, Paul Hamm wins the men's gymnastics all-around Olympic gold medal by the closest margin ever in the event. Controversy follows after it's discovered a scoring error cost Yang Tae-yong, South Korea, the title. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with Erwin Lutzer author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm just about to engage in with Dr. Lutzer. Every day it seems that here in America, our society is falling farther away from Christian values and common decency. And many of us are unsure how to respond, but respond we must. Well, in his latest book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our cultural uh, Culture's Assault on Christianity, my guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he equips readers with the truth of scripture to help live out our convictions against the growing tide of hostility. Dr. David Jeremiah, he points out in the foreword that the book examines every cultural issue that we're facing. Nothing is left out. It addresses diversity issues, racial issues, gender issues, social justice, and much more. Once again, we will not be silenced. Arms believers with a deeper understanding of the hurts and concerns of non-believers with regard to social issues so the church is able to respond in a compassionate and gentle manner. Well, Dr. Lutzer is the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, 
where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and Loyola University. He's the author of numerous books, including the Gold Medallion Award winner, Hitler's Cross, and the bestseller, One Minute After You Die. He's also a teacher on radio programs, heard on more than 700 stations. We are delighted to have him with us today to talk about this very timely book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad that I can join you and uh, so glad for your ministry. Well, I appreciate your encouragement. This is such a timely book. I, I, I suppose one would wonder, is this a prophetic screed or is this just, um, you know, having the insight to see where our country has been going for a very long period of time uh, and how we as the church ought to respond uh, and the need for us to be aware? What inspired you to release this book at this time and to write it in general for the sake of the church and the culture? Well, you know, the way it has worked out, first of all, let me say I wrote the book when I began to realize that the radical left does not believe that America can be fixed. It must be destroyed. And then on the foundations, on the rubble of our Christian Judeo heritage, they want to build a new America based on Marxist principles. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered, in fact, the first chapter is on Marxism, I didn't realize that cultural Marxism, which means that Marxism is to be implemented incrementally, Mm -hmm. really underlies everything that is happening in our society that isn't good. And that's why I get into diversity issues, you know, a biblical view of race as opposed to social justice. And there's a right way to talk about social justice, but there's also a wrong way. And then critical race theory, why it is. In fact, I might say that one of the reasons I wrote it, among many others, is so that when parents send their kids off to school and they come back hating America, parents would understand what is being taught to my Mm -hmm. child about America. And why do they come back saying that we are such a racist nation and uh, all of those other things? But I have eight different assaults that are directed against the church, but each chapter ends with an admonition as to what I think the church should be doing. And I appreciate that so much because one can leave hopeless when you consider where we stand as a nation today. I think for many people, the wake-up call really began with this latest presidential election, but it's it's healthy for us to have a clear understanding of what direction the culture is taking. I think it's important to point out um, a statement that you make in the book to, to give our listeners some perspective on where you come from. You write that I am opposed to a form of Christianity that judges without licensing and sees the faults of others without seeing our own. As a pastor, my heart breaks for those who hurt, who are confused, and who don't know where to turn for help. Our churches should be sanctuaries for the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the lonely. Uh, They should be hospitals for the soul. You take a very compassionate um, approach, but I am grateful to say that it's also a thoroughly biblical approach to the issues confronting us today as the church and a nation. As a matter of fact, when it comes to issues of sexuality, for example, I point out it is much better to be thought of as hateful and speak the truth than to speak lies with compassionate tones and um, a sense of caring. Uh, So, yes, what I do is emphasize the need for truth. There's always that balance, love and truth. But I really do think that unless we 
approach the culture with brokenness, unless that happens, you know, we aren't going to be heard. And so what we need to do is to try to understand where people are coming from and to listen to them. By the way, it just comes to mind that one of my chapters, for example, is on propaganda. And Mm -hmm. I point out that the purpose of propaganda is to so change people's perception of reality that no matter how much counter evidence, they will not change their minds. And so how are we going to change people's minds? Well, we do need to listen and so forth. But we are actually, and I know that there's a lot of um, information swirling around right now because of the presidential election. But, you know, my heart breaks because I think we are on the verge of seeing things against the church that we've never seen before. And... um, You know, we could talk about any one of these things, but even the sexualization of children, for example, or socialism, which happens to be, I think, one of the longest chapters in my book. So the at what is happening. And by the way, thank you so much for your intro. You ask whether or not it's a prophetic book. Actually, this book was written and completed in about um, August almost of this year. Well, I guess maybe a little bit earlier than that. Let's just say uh, July and August. And so it deals with the tearing down of monuments, what's going on there, the whole issue of race in America, the way in which it's being approached, what children and young people are learning today in their schools. So all those issues are ones that I've talked about. Yes, yes. Well, I want to cover much of that as much as our time will permit. But let's begin uh, with a subject that you mentioned early on, and that is cultural Marxism. The word is being used quite often these days. But let's talk about what it is and what its goals are so that we as the body of Christ, those of us who are committed to biblical truth, uh, what we need to know in order to effectively minister to our communities and confront falsehood. Thank you so much for asking that. That's one of the most important questions. When Marx gave his theories, we know that in Russia and other countries, Marxism came with a a revolution with guns and the killing of millions of people and so forth. Marx is basically statism, that the Mm -hmm. state has to take over the means of production. The state has to take the place of God. All right. He believed that the key to history was oppression. And if we could just rid the world of oppression, everybody would live together in harmony and peace. And here's a very important point. He believed that the family, the nuclear family, was a great hindrance to the glories and the beauty of the Marxist state. Why? Families were a unit of oppression. You know, husbands oppressed their wives, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church, God was the ultimate oppressor, and so what he needed to do is to break up the nuclear family. And furthermore, families tend to pass on their wealth. Well, that's contrary to the Marxist view of inequality. So what he did is he said that women have to work outside the home, the children have to be raised by the state, and so forth. Okay, that's Marxism. Cultural Marxism says we can bring these same changes about, but do it incrementally 
so that people will want Marxism because they will see how valuable it is and they will see its benefits. So what we can do by capturing law, by capturing education, by capturing the media and even elections, we can bring about the beauties of Marxism as it is believed. We can do that without killing people. We can do it even, quote, uh, demographically, (laughs) of course, I mean, (laughs) from the standpoint of democracy. We can do it that way. And so his whole, uh, excuse me, so cultural Marxism comes along and says, let's do it bit by bit. Now, people need to understand, as I've emphasized, that the goals are the same. The state has to be supreme. And dependence upon the state is absolutely important. And uh, so that's why oftentimes you find this lurch toward socialism. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could talk about that for a moment. Let me just well, in say fact, this. That- we're going to take a break and we'll give you an opportunity to talk about that. Finish your thought, but we'll return and talk a bit about socialism. Yeah, socialism always talks about how to divide wealth. It never talks about creating it because it can't create it. That's simply in a couple of sentences. <laughs> hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. His latest book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, covering all of the major issues of our day and giving us an understanding, but also a Christian perspective on how we can respond to the culture. Now, just before the break, we were talking about your longest chapter, which is on socialism and why it's so attractive and why it must fail and how we as believers should respond, because a Along with the discussion of socialism, we're hearing and have for quite some time statements that Jesus was a socialist, and this is more uh, reflective of Christianity than is capitalism, for example. Yeah, very good questions. Uh, Here's the important thing. As I mentioned before the break, socialism only talks about how to divide wealth and not how to create it. And the reason is because socialism cannot create wealth. When you have equality of income, for example, Rebecca and I have been in Russia where in the 1980s, where a doctor was paid essentially as much as other hospital workers. Well, obviously, there was a great uh, dearth of doctors who would want to be a doctor. So socialism has to control wages. It has to control earnings. It cannot create wealth. And so when it runs out of money, You remember Margaret Thatcher's very famous line when she says the problem with socialism is that pretty soon you run out of people's other people's money. Well, when you run out of other people's money, there's only one thing that the government can do, and that is to create more money. And so you have rampant inflation as all of these things begin to happen. Only the freedom of capitalism is able to create wealth. 
I want to throw this in, and then I'll answer your question about Jesus. But um, it has been said, why is it that mice die in mouse traps? Well, the answer is because they don't understand why the cheese is free. Now, that being said, was Jesus a socialist? Absolutely not. I point out that in the New Testament, for example, there was no socialism. But let's talk about Jesus. Jesus told a parable in which he said that there was one man who was given ten talents, and another man was given five, and another three, and another one. Jesus knew that there would not be equality of income. We should seek equality of opportunity for people, but there will never be equality of outcomes. There's also there's always going to be a difference as to how much people earn and their station in life. What the Bible does require, however, is that everybody is responsible for what they have. Luke 12, 48, unto whom much is given, much is required. Those who haven't received much will be judged by a different standard. God is not a socialist. He didn't treat um, Hammurabi the way he treated Abraham. He sovereignly saves Abraham and chooses the Jews. And so the whole idea that you're going to have socialism, which is imposed by the state and forced upon us, is really totally foreign to the scriptures. You also have a chapter, and I I love that you included this because it's so important today. One of the most interesting chapters is on propaganda. Now, what are the goals and how are these goals being achieved? And and what's the the means by which propaganda uh, is being, um, being used? Propaganda is used in many different ways. Sometimes slogans, for example, contain a lot of propaganda. I refer to Hitler because the same-sex movement, the homosexual movement in the early 80s, wrote a book on how they were going to change America's perception of homosexuality. And they actually said that um, they were relying on some things that Hitler had said. Because Hitler said that with the right use of propaganda, you can make heaven appear like hell and hell appear like heaven. So let's, um, there are different ways it's done, but let's dive into this business of slogans. When Hitler starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. And you think, for example, in our abortion clinics today, nobody talking, talks about the killing of preborn infants. What do they talk about? Uh, they talk about uh, the termination of a pregnancy and uh, a woman's right to choose. So what you do is you hide what you are doing. When Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews, he called it the cleansing of the land. And today, of course, you oftentimes have slogans. Let's even talk about Black Lives Matter. Do black lives matter? Of course they matter. All black lives matter, including the ones that are shot oftentimes here in the city of Chicago every week. All bl- And I don't mean to imply that only black lives are shot. I'm just simply saying that, of course, black lives matter. But the organization that takes that mantra actually is Marxist. That's why it seeks the destruction of the family that we talked about earlier in the show. And, and one of the founders says, we are trained 
Marxists. Marxists, yes. What is my point? You use slogans that appear to be good, but you use it to camouflage what it is that you're really going to do. So that's one way propaganda is. The other is you enforce it by fear and hate. And you make people fear that if they don't fall in line, they are going to be in trouble. And we have lots of examples of that happening in our society today. There's a doctor who said that when he gives uh, transgender people or people who think that they are transgender, he cannot tell them about the harm that will come to them if they have transgender surgery because he would be fired as a doctor. So he cannot even practice his trade with what he knows. So we are living at a time when propaganda is put forth with fear and hatred. And so you have what I call cultural streams that oftentimes are very difficult to withstand. You um, also have an interesting chapter on how the radical left is teaming up with Islam to destroy America. Now, that may seem nonsensical to some of your readers and our listeners. Uh, why that would be the case, I guess the ends justify the means. But can you talk a bit about that very interesting chapter that might surprise your readers? Well, yeah, and the reason that they are together is not because they agree, uh, you know, um, Islam, of course, a very supremacist religion wanting to impose Islam, Sharia law. Why would the radical left join with them? Well, in military terms, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what, that, what happens is you will always find the left defending Islam. There is separation of church and state. We've heard about that for a long time. But um, when money is used and it is being used to build prayer rooms for Muslim students in our public schools, there's no opposition from the ACLU. More ominously, there are schools today in America where Islam is being taught, and when parents object, the parents are called haters and, and intolerant and everything else. Could you imagine schools where... Christianity were taught. And so in that chapter, I also talk about Islam's view of immigration. In the Quran, it is very important to understand that immigration is seen as a means of spreading the faith. Now, there are many Muslims in America who have picked up on Western values. They have no special intention of imposing Islam, but the radicals certainly do. And uh, while I'm on the topic, there are churches today that have, um, you know, a common idea of bringing in an imam for Christian dialogue with Muslims. This is so wrong. I quote a book written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to Americans so that they are willing to accept it. I'm not opposed to a debate, but where somebody is allowed to give his own view without contradiction and without any rebuttal, oftentimes this leads to a very skewed view of what Islam is really like. 
We're talking with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and I think we have time for one more segment. His book is titled, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, an important book for us to understand the culture, and more importantly, our response as believers, as followers of Christ. One of the things that he uh, states is that um, what a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. We are called for such a time as this, and we must pray that our light might shine more brightly than ever in our darkening world. Now, many of us feel like, Lord God, why did you place me here and why, why am I living now? We're more frustrated by it all. And yet, I think the position that he has taken is the right one because God has placed us in this strategic point in history for his good purpose. So we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Cultures, um, uh, to Our Cultures Assault on Christianity. You have a chapter titled Vilify, 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 and how uh, disagreements um, are being resolved or failing to be resolved is perhaps a better way of putting it. Can you give us an example of what this means for the church today, our unwillingness to simply be civil to one another, to a- accept that we have disagreements uh, rather than to vilify one's opponent so that there can not only be um, agreement, but uh, we can't even associate because the uh, our opponents are always evil? Exactly. That's the way in which the left looks at things. It's not just that you disagree with me and we have a disagreement, but you disagree with me, therefore you are evil. So you asked, uh, Georgine, the question of give an example. Well, I could give many, but here in Missouri, there is a church which last year, just a year ago now, the pastor preached a message on Genesis 1:27, saying that uh, there are only two genders. Now, he was so kind. He talked about those who struggle with same-sex attraction or those who believe they're transgender. In fact, the message was so kind and so loving, I wondered whether or not he was going to land the plane, so to speak, but he did. <laughs> the next day, that church was vilified in the newspapers. It was on television throughout Missouri, and students at the university said, I can't, I don't know if I can feel safe in a city, in a city of, in where, this was the city of Columbia, I don't know that I can feel safe in Columbia if there's a church that believes there are only two genders. You know, I deal with this in the book, how there's safism yes. today, where, oh, you said something that offended me. I need a safe place because my oppression is not being fully realized. Well, anyway, this church had raised two months before $420,000 to pay for all the outstanding hospital bills for people in their community. They had been actively involved in the community in so many helpful ways and in terms of um, the poor and all. You know, it is often said, we need to be known for what we are for and not just for what we are against. This church was widely known for what it was for. 
But when it came time for them to be against something, everybody um, everybody forgot that, and this church was vilified. Well, that's coming to a church near you. But that yes. gives an example of how we are living at a time today when we can't, we find civil discourse very difficult because everybody is enraged by something. Everybody is offended by something. And so people are totally para, uh, paralyzed. They don't know what they can say. You know, you just say the wrong thing and people will hop on you. And on social media, pretty soon you will be docs. You'll be taken care of and you'll be canceled. Look at Drew Brees. You know, he said that he stood for the flag because he wanted to honor it. Well, the mob got after him. He apologized not once but twice. Why? Because today we hear this. Oh, yes, you have the First Amendment. You can express your views. But if you express a wrong view, we will cancel you. Now, in that chapter, I tell one other story that I need to tell very quickly. What you need when you have a revolution always is a pretext. Kristallnacht, 1937, in Germany. Jewish businesses were burned, synagogues were burned, etc. We all know about it historically. That didn't happen in a vacuum. What happened was there was a German diplomat who was shot by a Jewish student in Paris. Hitler told his fire departments and his police to stand back. He said Jewish businesses and synagogues were going to be burned. The man who was shot was Ernst Roth. Now, I can just imagine, and I'm using my imagination here, that there were people marching the streets of Germany. We just want justice for Ernst. Justice for Ernst. Well, we saw that during the riots when we just want justice for George Floyd. We just want justice. So what you need is a pretext that will give legitimacy to your revolution. That also ties in with some of the things that we talked about, propaganda. But today, everybody's enraged, and um, freedom of speech is greatly jeopardized because everybody fears what they might say that might be wrong. Absolutely. By the way, today happens to be the anniversary. 1938 was Kristallnacht. Today was the day that occurred in Germany. We're talking about the book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Uh, It's just an excellent book to help us understand the culture, how to respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, and to do so in a way that upholds the standards that Christ has set for us. Now, the final chapter of your book is based on the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis. Strengthen what remains is the phrase. And what do you think Jesus might say? And is saying to the church today because he still speaks to us through his word well what was wrong with the church in sardis they had a reputation of being alive but they were dead and the problem with the church in sardis was that they no longer saw the world as an enemy so they embraced their culture and i suggest that what jesus would say to the church today is number one be sure that you are clear on the gospel be gospel-driven, and don't get caught up in social justice. Now, there's a right way to define it and a wrong way. That would be a separate discussion. But there are many churches today that no longer evangelize because they are into social justice. Number two, Jesus would talk about the sexuality of the culture. 
As a matter of fact, what happened in Sardis was the church bought into pagan culture and sexuality. So I point that out. And then I think the third thing that he would say is, love me more than you love your sin. And there I talk briefly about social media technology, which is a tremendous enemy of the church today. Now it's good. We all use technology. We all use our computers and we use Zoom and everything else. But the point is that so much which is on the internet is impure. It is instantly addictive. And so I weep for the younger generation caught up in technology. So Jesus would say that, and then he would tell us to be sure to remain strong and to know that how we look in heaven is much more important than how we look on earth. Mm, Amen. Where can our listeners acquire a copy of We Will Not Be Silenced? Because every one of them needs a copy of this book. Thank you so much for asking. Of course, they can buy it on Amazon, but there are many listeners who might want to support our Moody Media Ministry. So here's what they can do. They can go to MCM. That, of course, stands for Moody Church Media, but it's all one word, mcmoffer.com. And for a gift of any amount, it will be sent out immediately. That's mcmoffer.com. And I want to thank many listeners in advance for helping us. Running to Win is now in more than 20 different countries, all because of our wonderful supporters. Well, Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. But more, most importantly, for this book, We Will Not Be Silenced. It's an important book that covers the issues that the, uh, the church is facing today and gives us some clear direction on how we might effectively minister in this very time that God has placed us in. Thank you so much, Georgine. Thank you. And once again, I so appreciate uh, what he says, what a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. It may not feel like that. You may wish you were from an, uh, an easier time, and yet God has appointed us to this time. We need to be equipped so that we can, as the subtitle of the book says, respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, because more than anything else, the culture needs Jesus. And if we don't tell them, How will they know? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, here's something to add to your list of horribles. (laughs) Uh, China is apparently infiltrating kids' video games with propaganda and spyware. I'm telling you, there's only safety in Jesus. You're not going to find it anyplace else. Well, uh, many are rightfully concerned about the growing influence of video-based social media platform TikTok and the Chinese government's ability to harvest incredible amounts of user data from that site. China's largest social media and video game studio, Tencent, as it's called, has quietly been acquiring a commanding stake in the most popular video game companies around the world, and no one has seemed to notice. From Riot Games' flagship title, um, Valorant, uh, to the popular Epic Games produced by um, Fortnite, uh, this organization, Tencent, and the Chinese Communist Party are inserting propaganda, and they're influencing a generation of children around the world while their parents aren't looking. Well, who would think to look in the content of a video game? 
Well, these days, lots of parents do. But last week, Tencent announced that it aims to acquire a greater stake in the French studio Ubisoft. It's behind popular titles like Assassin's Creed and Rainbow Six Siege. Now, some of you know what that is all about. Uh, I've at least heard of uh, Assassin's Creed. I don't know so much about Rainbow Six Siege, but these are popular, very popular video games. Well, in 2018, Tencent acquired 5% of the studio and subsequently started to exert its influence over the company. For example, last year, Ubisoft made visual changes to certain games so it could sell them in China. Changes included eliminating gambling symbolism and skulls from playable environments. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad. The company was forced to roll back those changes, however, after players in North America and in Europe promised never to play the game again if the changes remained. So money talks, even in the uh, communist Chinese, uh, well, business world. While the Chinese-friendly changes to some titles were reversed after fans expressed outrage, it's evident that game studios are increasingly worried about pleasing Tencent and the Chinese Communist Party. With that in mind, Tencent's quest to become Ubisoft's largest private shareholder shouldn't be taken lightly. Well, during the coronavirus pandemic, Ubisoft released numerous history games and online experiences for children who were forced to learn at home. As many gamers have noted, titles like Assassin's Creed possess a remarkable amount of educational value with their accurate modeling of historic cities and monuments. And with the deteriorating quality of our education system, it should be no surprise that kids and their parents are turning to video games to help aid in that learning process. Well, as Ubisoft continues to improve upon these history games and educational experiences, the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to influence and shape these foundational narratives presents a direct threat to kids around the world. Now, interestingly enough, parents are currently battling with their own government in the United States to try to rescue education from the reformers, if you will. But there are now growing concerns about the role of the Chinese Communist Party in the content in some of these video games, some for entertainment, some for education. Concerns of weaponizing the narrative stories of video games into propaganda only scratch the surface of Tencent's active campaign to conquer your home, as one writer put it. Well, in 2020, the online community highlighted the spyware-like anti-cheat software used in uh, Valorant. Uh, The so-called anti-cheat software would launch upon starting your computer, regardless of whether the users open the game or not, and it would monitor all the user activity, logging which programs were used. Uh, The software broke from the industry standard and was viewed as intrusive, Uh, in an intrusion into the user's privacy, which, of course, it is. And while Riot Games quickly denied the allegations and changed the design of its software, many remained unconvinced. After all, this is the same company that hid data breach uh, of millions of accounts from its users. Even more alarming, in March of 2019, it was revealed that over 300 million users' messages sent to Tencent platforms and games were stored on a database used by the Chinese police. I know the first uh, thought is, you know, we're a family of four. I got a couple of young kids. What on earth would the Chinese communist government, uh, what interest would they have in my family? And when I go to um, the Food Network to look for a recipe, why should I be concerned as a parent? Well, there's a lot more going on, apparently, in this um, this whole effort. Well, Tencent has established itself as a critical tool of the Chinese Communist Party. The question is, why? The video game company has used its games to spy on Americans and 
um, uh, lack of uh, technology, uh, technological literacy of parents across the country has made it much more well, lucrative for them in more ways than just what they put in the wallet. They're using its uh, digital content to propagandize children, and it's preyed upon the lack of um, intelligence among parents. And I'm talking about technological literacy, placing their data privacy and their kids in direct jeopardy, entering into your system through your children. Well, Tencent's quiet rise to global digital dominance is one of the great threats facing American children online, from TikTok to uh, Tencent. And uh, your child's favorite video game, China is committed to influencing children and stealing private data. It's uh, critical that parents begin to take a more active role in curtailing what their kids are playing online. So it's a rather interesting uh, thing to uh, to consider in the long and growing lists of threats to the role of parents in determining what is, in fact, most important to the family and in protecting uh, the children as well. Well, today marks a rather momentous occasion. Rosalind Carter, she turned 95 today, making her the second longest living former first lady. And she marked the event with a celebration surrounding butterfly conservation. Now, you may not know, but her birthday also marks an annual statewide count of butterflies. It's the Great uh, Georgia Pollinator Census. It's set for Friday and Saturday to honor the first lady's passion for, well, insects. The census is put on by the University of Georgia, with um, South Carolina also keeping count of its own. Well, the first lady planted her own garden featuring the prime habitat for monarch butterflies, native milkweed, in the, in the home she shares with the former president, Jimmy Carter, after uh, reading about the bug's decline. Well, since the, public's, uh, the public rather can't visit her garden because of security concerns, she subsequently established the Rosalind Carter Butterfly Trail in 2019, complete with 76 public and private gardens around rural Plains, Georgia. Well, the trail added a new butterfly statue last week to commemorate her birthday, where the university was uh, attended by the Carters. That was done on Saturday. Well, Bess, the former uh, president, uh, the wife of former president Harry S. Truman, uh, is the only other first lady to live longer than uh, Rosalind Carter, dying at the age of 97. So Rosalind has a way uh, a way to go. That's according to the National First Ladies Library. And yes, there is one. Jimmy Carter is the oldest living former president at 97 years old. And the Carters have been married for 73 years. Years. So happy birthday to Rosalind Carter. Hope she can enjoy her butterfly sanctuary and her butterflies. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.